Turn to James chapter 1, this fourth week in this book together. You've been coming here for any amount of time. You hopefully have caught on that a lot of the songs, if not mostly all of them, usually have to do with the theme of our sermon. And so as you've been thinking about our songs, maybe you realize it might be a little bit hard today. We need to be reminded, though, that James, like wisdom literature, is cyclical, so cycle, cyclical in its themes, and that he often comes back to the same themes over and over. And we return to our first theme slightly today in which James began his letter talking about trials. However, today he gets specific about some of the trials we face, namely temptations to sin. And also I have told you and reiterated every week that James is practical concise and illustrative, and his practicality and conciseness are often very terse and abrasive. See, there's, there's really no way you can misconstrue what he says. <laughs> he has vivid imagery that sometimes can be a little blunt, and he's out to get your soul. He's not out for your comfort. <laughs> Today's imagery is stark. He says temptation is like a wicked fisherman reeling people in with bait. And he says that sin is like being seduced and being brought to bed and then giving birth to something that ultimately destroys us. So hold on tight as we stand in honor of reading God's word today. If you're able to stand, please do so. James chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire... When it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Father, I don't know if I come before any message feeling as if I've completely arrived at what I'm preaching. As John says, I must decrease and you must increase. Holy Spirit, would you get a hold of our hearts today? Do not let this moment pass until we have responded obediently. Your grace and your spirit can give us the power. So we rely on him today. And we plead on the mercy of Jesus Christ who has died for our sins and has given us new life. Help us to live in that new life. Get me out of the way and say what it is that you desire. Speak to us in words that we understand. Encourage us, comfort us whenever you do convict us. Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
some of our most vulnerable times to sin happens when we're under stress, right? Seems my opening stories I've been giving you has been following my life pretty chronologically, so I'll just continue. I opened two weeks ago telling you that uh, I had a little bit of a disdain for conservative talk radio, not because I don't agree with it, I just don't agree with the way they present it. So instead of conservative talk radio, I told you last week I redeemed my commute time while I was working for Pepsi by listening to pastors uh, and sermons, one of which who experienced the loss of an infant, like my brother Aaron had lost his firstborn son. So now let me tell you about my own fears and worries surrounding the death of my nephew. It's easy in a tragedy to sin. Vulnerability happens under stress. And what I feared concerning the death of my nephew was that my brother would choose sin in his response. That the trial would be too much, he'd be tempted to somehow either hold God responsible or choose not to believe in God, because why would such a horrible thing happen to one of God's people? Why would a loving and absolutely in control God allow an infant to die? I did not think this as a reflection on my brother's faith or lack thereof, but just as the reality that we are vulnerable when we're stressed. Isn't that the very idea of comfort food? I'm sad. I think I'll eat more and worry less. Right? Some of you ladies, maybe whenever you were a teenager, maybe now, you know, you broke up with your boyfriend. I had a horrible day. I'll go home and get a quart of ice cream and watch a good movie. Right? Gluttony seems like a great option to overcome stress. We seem to be wired to be vulnerable to sin when we're stressed. How many times have you had arguments with people, but if you're honest, the argument did not spring up from really anything to do with that person? but rather another situation in your life that's eating at you and you didn't want to talk about it or you haven't had the confidence to talk about it with anyone. And so what's holding you under, you're angry and you lash out at innocent victims, under stress, vulnerable. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Again, we're returning to our first theme, surviving trials. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, remaining under. The very idea of staying in trials that come upon us, not seeking a way out. Why? For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Some Christians find this a little unsettling, as it sounds like James is saying, hey, stick with it to get the prize at the end, <laughs> as if our obedience would somehow be impure and self-interested if this is our sole desire to stick with it, right? Uh, I'm sticking with it because there's something in it for me. This isn't necessarily the logic that James is using. Firstly, the crown of life might be a picture to when Greek athletes finished their race and received victory wreaths to put around their heads. So James is not referring to opulence, nobility, or gemstones, but rather the idea of receiving the realization of our hopes that after enduring the trials, we are to endure. 
As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-25, very relevant to this passage in James, Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Secondly, the symbol of the crown of life, or the rewards of a faithful life, refer to the fullness or the fulfillment and the realization and the arrival of the satisfactory life that communion with God gives. It's seeing God face to face. It's being in total consummation with Him and communion with Him forever, eternal life. So the crown of life is a glorying in God, not a self-glory. Do you hear that? And glorying in God just happens to be the epitome of our own satisfaction. They accomplish the same thing. Furthermore, the fruits of our labor of obedience, according to Paul in Philippians 2, 12-13, are of God's doing as well. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, So we hear Paul saying to them, work out your own salvation. And then verse 13, listen to this. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there is this, sorry I didn't go forward on that verse, but there is this connection with our effort and our will and our obedience being directly influenced by God's working in us. We must endure the trial, so James has been telling us. And we will endure to receive the crown of life solely by the power of God in us. We are going to see as well that James finds the origin of our obedience from God as God's own doing as well in James 1.18. So I know this is a little bit hard. There's something happening here that utilizes both our responsibility and God's sovereign grace and power in the believer. These are two apparently contradictory forces. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. This was not a problem for Jewish hearers, though it is a problem for Western thinkers like us. We are able to keep our eyes, though, on the joy and the satisfaction and the fulfilling life found in our relationship to God because it is during trials where we become vulnerable. And James knows this. Which is why he moves on to say, let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. As I've been saying, we're vulnerable when we're stressed. Trials, external problems, usually coincide with internal temptations. Two things that come at once. If you're facing something out there, you'll be tempted with something in here. I've made the, the uh, example of an external problem for the teenage girl, boyfriend dumped her, the internal problem becomes the coping mechanism. Is she going to turn to gluttony, <laughs> feel better quickly at the expense of my health, 
stressful time out there, relationship problems, maybe a financial problems, internal problem, how am I going to cope? Internal temptation. Run away? Am I going to escape? Am I going to turn to, to cigarettes or alcohol? And whenever I do give in to temptation, am I going to blame the external problem and not own it? Or will I blame the external and feel justified in what I'm doing? It's on the movies all the time, or maybe you've heard about it in other people's lives. Maybe you've sadly been here before. The story goes, one person gets cheated on, so the victim of the adultery suddenly feels justified to go find another lover themselves, because it's not their fault. They were sinned against first, and apparently they're not valued, so off they go to do the same thing. External stress, vulnerable. Internal trial, sin. We need to understand the difference as well between testing, which God does do, and tempting to sin, which God does not do. There is a fine line here, and it seems very fine, because the thinnest line in the Bible that I can think of is when God tested Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Look at the language in Genesis 22, 1 through 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Any of you fathers read that and your hearts turn. Obviously, no doubt whatsoever, child sacrifice, ungodly practice, a practice of the people outside of God's people, the Israelites. Perhaps it's the very thing, one of the very things that Abraham came away from when he was called out uh, in, as by God to go to a, a new land, leaving everything and everyone he knew. Because we know the end of this test in Genesis 22 where the angel shows up and says, don't lay a hand on the boy, and how God provides the ram. We know that God did not tempt Abraham to sin, seeing how God never intended to see Abraham offer Isaac. But he tested Abraham to see his obedience. God does not stop all the time bad things from happening to us, at times to see us tested and purified in our faith. And under trials and under tests, there still may be temptations to resist while staying within the broader trial. I brought up a few weeks ago Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Joseph fled, and rightly so, the seduction of Potiphar's wife. But he did not flee the prison whenever he was thrown into it. He endured the trial for doing the right thing concerning Potiphar's wife. And doing the right thing by abiding by the law of the land, though he was guilty, he was not guilty. Because we are tested, and sometimes that test is okay, permitted, allowed by God, and temptation comes, we are not to say that we are being tempted by God. Does that make sense? Like if an ex-alcoholic who used to drink, when things got really tough comes upon a hard season in their Christian life, strapped with big bills to pay or stress in relationships, simply because they're tempted to drink again does not mean that God tempted them. You ever have those vicious cycle sins? Once you see it as a sin, you cannot stop doing it. 
Maybe it's addictions. Maybe it's emotional outbursts all too familiar. Whatever the sin is, and you hurt people in the process. I've been there a time or two with different sins. And I remember coming to this place of saying, God, I have begged, I have pleaded, I want you to remove this sin so many times. And to be honest, I have been honest with God, saying things like, your word says of this sin, your word tells me you have the power and the resources to remove this sin from me, and I sincerely want the sin out of my life, so what's the deal here, right? God hates it, I hate it, I don't want to sin anymore, he doesn't want me to sin, I don't have the power to stop sinning, God does. And so I've said to God, almost in an angry sort of way, let's go, get this over with. (laughs) Let's be done with this sin, but then I keep coming back to sin in those moments. What do you do in those moments? I cannot blame God, but at the same time, it seems to me he's the only one not working to remove this sin. <laughs> Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James tells us it's not some mind game that God plays with us, holds over us. I have nobody to blame but myself, when it comes to giving in to sin. Because the truth is, you and I have an option every time a temptation comes up. Let me say that clearly and loudly. You and I have an option every time a temptation comes up. If you are in Christ, you can say no to sin. Don't let any theologian tell you that you're bent on doing evil so much that you're going to do it every time. If you are a Christian, Paul says we are slaves and that can choose who our master will be in Romans 6, 13 and 19. And so the point is, temptation comes up, you have two masters at that point contending for your servitude. Will it be the flesh or the spirit? And it really comes down to, quite literally, will it be death or life? Will it be sin or righteousness? Will you make this a trial that is successful by the grace of God or a failure, once again? Will you be a failure or an overcomer? Will you give in to the desires of your flesh or receive the gift of grace and spirit-empowered resistance? You and I have an option every time a temptation comes up. And to show you how horrible it is to say yes to sin, James then explains it to us. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Own it. It's not God's fault. And notice how James even leaves out the devil here. He says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Leered and enticed. This is the wicked fisherman happening. And it's in our minds. What is your own desire? That can be a lot of things. Comfort. Lured by the promise of comfort, which always seems to happen when God calls us to a big task. That's that's pretty big, God. I kind of like my easy chair. Comfort. Enticed by the things that bring it and make you stagnant in your walk with God. Is it convenience and greed? Lured by the prospect of money, enticed by the ways you can get it and or keep it? Is it lust in this society where 
I'm glad I don't have cable television because I don't even want Calvin to see the commercials, <laughs> let alone some of the shows, because it seems everything is sold on the bodies of women anymore. Many people are lured in by lust and enticed by people's own desires. Own it. It's your desire. There's a wicked fisherman. It's our three-pound fallen brain, and we all have got a drug of choice. All that's needed is for bait to be out in front of us. And all we need to do is forsake the reality of who God is for a moment. The eternal wellspring of joy. It is God who satisfies the where it counts. And if we overlook Almighty God, maker of heavens and the earth, maker of our bodies and souls, who is intimately aware of what would best fulfill us, if we overlook him because we've been baited, then we are vulnerable. I'm not a big fisherman, but once the bait is successful and the fish is coming, it's pretty much over, right? The instant the fish decides, I want that dang worm, he's as good as dead. And once his mouth is on the hook, he's really as good as dead. That is what happens with sin. And though the bait was placed by the fisherman, the fish decided on his own to accept the bait. We live in a world of bait, but we have no one to blame but ourselves if we freely look on the bait after we've been told what it is. We've been told what it is by the Word of God, by the Holy Spirit. And if we are in Christ, we not only have knowledge of what that bait is, but we have the power to resist. When we don't resist, we have no one to blame but ourselves. Verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Our own desire here, our own sinful desire, has the ability to reproduce. <laughs> whenever we exercise our, whenever our, an exercise of our will merges with that sinful desire. Now, first of all, know that the opposite is true. Great and glorious things happen whenever we delight in the Lord. We merge ourselves with Him in submission because we are the bride who ought to submit to His husband. Great and glorious things and awesome things can happen, but James Sadly, he's not talking about that right now. He's talking about our own desire, being lured by bait, enticed by the bait, and then our desire finding physical connection and conception, and suddenly we have a little baby sin running around. This isn't like my cute little baby Calvin. <laughs> I mean, this is a bad scene. We've got to find ways to cover it up. We've got to find moments behind closed doors to keep feeding this thing. We've got to find the money from somewhere so people can't catch on what we're doing. we got to stay quiet about our little sin child while we're making time for it in life. Either that, or we force our loved one, loved ones to just deal with it. You know? Whenever you get me, you get little sin baby beast running around too. We're a package deal. Just accept it. And neither harboring a little sin baby beast or having one as carry-on on, where, on wherever we go is desirable, correct? Neither of those are desirable. Because, again, we're not feeding a cute, chubby little Calvin. We're feeding a beast that wants more, that never has enough. And if you feed the beast, you're feeding the beast that's going to consume you. The more you sin, the more you get numb to conviction, numb to the Holy Spirit telling you loud and clear, that's bait, you idiot. <laughs> Don't take the bait. 
The more you say, no one catches me, or I put everyone else who's cared about me out anyways, so I'm free to feed this beast as much as I want to without any emotional harm that I can observe. And the more you're feeding the very beast that's going to consume you. It's a scary thing. It's a true thing. We need to own it. We need to say, this isn't God's fault. This isn't the devil's fault. We'll talk about the devil and how he entices people to sin later in our series. James talks about it in James 4.8. But we need to own this. Why? We need to own this because whenever we own it, we realize how much more reliant on God we ought to be. We realize that we should be with Joseph fleeing the temptations when they come. And they will come. And it's not a sin that temptations do come. Nor is it a sin at the frequency in which they come. Because temptation is not a sin. What is sin is succumbing to the temptations. And the thing is just not, well, let's not be alone on our house, on our bed, chained to it, locked doors. I can't go anywhere because I'm tempted all the time. Jesus was tempted. Temptation itself was not a sin. And though we're all guilty of, at times of taking the world to bed and giving birth to sin and feeding the beast, we always have a way out until our dying breath. There is a way to say to that beast, i got to starve you. We're done. We're over. And it's through the very Savior, the very Lord and God, that we've said no to whenever we've given into temptation. God's grace is sufficient. God's love is unconditional. God's forgiveness is infinite. And the author of Hebrews gives us great consolation in Hebrews 2.18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you hear that? Christ not only has been tempted, but he has suffered when being tempted. That really helps me, because I've heard the whole, he's been tempted like we are, yet without sin, many times. And it's kind of sounded like that Jesus has, you know, naked women, booze, whatever, I'll go read Lamentations and preach another 47 people into the kingdom. No, Jesus has suffered. Like, I almost feel like he's had no familiarity of what carnal desires are even remotely filled with. Jesus has suffered when tempted. There were some really hard times with temptation. If I had to wonder at one, and this is just my own, you can forget about this after I say it, because it's not in the Bible anywhere, but here's a thought. Maybe he was tempted on how, on how to rightly respond whenever he was being mocked, ripped to pieces, and pierced in his body for our sins. Not only did he suffer in an ouch that hurts way, but also, I am God Almighty, and I know what resources I can tap into to respond to these people beating me. I won't say any more than that, because in James it says God has not been tempted by evil. But he has suffered when tempted. Jesus, when being horrifically mutilated, knew in those moments he had a sinful route of escape. And he could have escaped or responded sinfully in many ways, but he endured the suffering both physically and withstanding temptation. The point being, whenever you are tempted and you come to God, you're coming to someone who sympathizes. You're coming to someone who has been there. 
You're coming to someone who became flesh and experienced. I mean, you've got to hear this. Jesus never gave in to sin. But I have to believe that every time he was tempted, he had the most horrific weight over him. The, word, the weight of the world literally on his shoulders. There is no, no wonder he got away alone often to pray. Because every time he had the option before him, present myself to sin or to righteousness or to death or to life, he had to have this truth on his shoulders. If I give in, the world is gone. If I give in, I won't be a pure sacrifice. If I give in, there will be no hope for any person who would ever put their faith in me, because even then I would have failed God. If you believe that Christ was tempted in every way we are, and he suffered when tempted, you have to believe that for Christ he had the option. He had the option to sin. That's the definition of temptation, not being sin, but the option is there. And having suffered temptation, James tells us that God is not the one who tempts. It's our own desire. And we can merge our desires with the bait and conceive and give birth to little rampant beasts and feed it until it destroys us. Or we can see what happens when we merge with Christ, conceive and give birth to life and watch it grow into abundance. Because God does not tempt, but he tests and purifies faith. Listen to what James says here. Do not be deceived, talking about the idea that God would even tempt believers, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Jesus survived temptation because he's God. And though the temptation was there, Jesus surely suffered. Being God, he never changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And friends, God is always good. God is always generous. God is always loving. He's always forgiving. He's always righteous. He's always saving, redeeming, restoring, healing, rescuing, and blessing. And for those who in Paul's language would present themselves as slaves to God, you would be presenting yourself not to a beast who would consume you, but to the God who made you and gives good gifts. Not to a beast who feels good to feed every now and then, but to God that forever fills with water that quenches the soul and the bread of life that feeds and nourishes the soul. Every good gift, do you hear that? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. You know what one gift would be from God, for those who would ask? Wisdom, to overcome the temptation. You see, as I said, James is cyclical in his writing of this letter, and so he's talking about trials. And when he talked about trials the first time, he wasn't necessarily maybe talking about temptations, but when he talked about trials, he said, Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect to complete, lacking in nothing. Listen to this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. God gives generously without reproach, and every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Wisdom to withstand temptations could be one of those gifts. We take hope that we have a Savior who identifies with us, who has suffered like we have suffered with temptations, who has the power to overcome the world, 
and instead of merging with our desires and giving birth to sin that grows up and leads to death, we can instead merge by faith with our Savior. And as James tells us, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind, a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's what God gives birth to. He brought us forth by the word of truth. And whenever we hear that word and accept that word, then, whenever, then we are rebirthed, reborn. James is speaking to the first generation of believers, and he is in some ways saying that his hearers are the first fruits of God's birthing the church. Because thanks to James, thanks to Peter, Paul, the disciples, these churches who endured persecutions and temptations to sin, just like you and me, overcame by the word of God, by the power of his spirit, and thanks to every believer in God's grace before you, from the first church to the medieval church, Reformation, Great Awakening, and a bunch of pioneers who came out west, by God's grace, these fruits and every other food were here. All because of God's own will he brought us forth. That's what God can do with a person who merges with him instead of merging with their own desires. So you know what? You're a Christian. And if you're a Christian, own that. Own it. You need to own your sins, you need to repent of sin, but you also need to own this. Because this is much better. We need to say to God, here's my sin, I'm a sinner. And it'll be hard because by that we need to not live in darkness but out in the light, we need to confess, repent of sin, do whatever it takes to say, I need to stop accepting the bait, but I cannot live in a vacuum. So I need help. And if the Christian that you're talking to about your sin is genuine and who you're getting help from, and if they lived at least one day on this planet, you're not going to surprise anyone. No one's going to say, you're telling me you're a sinner. I've never met one of those before. God's given us both spiritual and material ways of help of not accepting debate. But you and I need to do whatever we can to own this. We need to be feeding our souls and quenching our souls with the bread of heaven and the living water. We need to let that grow. We need to own this. I'll give you one practical thing in closing. I thought it might be too redundant or too overstated from a pastor or a church. But in my personal studies, this is what God slapped me in the head with this week, so... I thought if, like me, if I had an aha moment in my personal studies with this truth, maybe it would work for you too. I've been saying you and I need to own this. We need to own our sin, repent of sin, and own our being brought forth by God by the word of truth. And about this word, I started reading on my own time this week the book of Hebrews. And it struck me in Hebrews 1.3. And i got to read it from my personal Bible translation that I'm reading, the Holman Christian, because I love its word choice. And it says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does God sustain all things by? His powerful word. What do you and I have access to? His powerful word. Furthermore, Take hope in the last sentence in verse 3 there. After making purification for sins, that's a done deal. That's a past thing. That's you coming to God, and God saying, you're coming to me with temptations, and maybe even failures and sins. I've suffered with temptations, and about your sin, that's dealt with. 
It's been dealt with at the cross. I'm seated next to God Almighty. You're covered by my blood. Own your sin. Repent of your sin. Own your title as a child of God and be sustained by his powerful word. Friends, the point is, is the more you're in this, the more you'll be sustained. And as Jesus was able to face temptation in the desert, literally by the word of God, I believe you will be able to withstand by God's grace, sustained by his word, empowered by his spirit. You will no longer need to fall in temptations, but persevere, endure, and own what it means to be God's child. You have a choice, every temptation. So be presenting yourselves to him and to sin no more. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to own what it means to be a child of God. And you know me more than I know myself, which I guess surprises and amazes me all the more that your love is still there pursuing me. I think I'm a little terrible. Perhaps you know how terrible I really am. It would surprise me. But also, I think I'm a little loved by you. But I'm really loved by you, and that would surprise me. So, Father, would you help us, by your grace and your spirit, to own our sin? Father, that we would put in our schedule here and now where to go to, who to talk to, who to befriend and say, help me with this. Confess our sins one another and bear one another's burdens. Because, Father, we no longer want to be feeding that beast, but we want to be merging with you each and every chance we have. Would you help us there? Father, would you weigh heavy on the hearts of those who are tempted right now to forsake that plan? Would you bring them to obedience by grace? Father, we love you and we thank you. Pray that you would be with us as we travel to home, be with us in our fellowship after church. Continue to sustain us by your word. Father, we love you and we thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.